Book Six, Part Three of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book six, AD thirty two to thirty seven, part three, administrative settlements in the east. In the consulship of Caius Cestius and Marcus Servilius, some Parthian nobles came to Rome without the knowledge of their king Artabanus. Dread of Germanicus had made that prince faithful to the Romans and just to his people but he subsequently changed this behaviour for insolence towards us and tyranny to his subjects he was elated by the wars which he had successfully waged against the surrounding nations while he disdained the aged and as he thought unwarlike tiberius eagerly coveting armenia over which on the death of artaxius he placed arsaces his eldest son he further added insult and sent envoys to reclaim the treasures left by venones in syria and cilicia then too he insisted on the ancient boundaries of persia and macedonia and intimated with a vainglorious threat that he meant to seize on the country possessed by cyrus and afterwards by alexander the chief adviser of the parthians in sending the secret embassy was sinarches a man of distinguished family and corresponding wealth. Next in influence was Abdus, an eunuch, a class which, far from being despised among barbarians, actually possesses power. These, with some other nobles whom they admitted to their councils, as there was not a single Arsacid whom they could put on the throne, most of the family having been murdered by Artabanus, or being underage, demanded that Phraates, son of King Phraates, should be sent from Rome. Only a name, they said, and on authority were wanted. Only, in fact, that with Caesar's consent, a scion of the house of Arsaces should show himself on the banks of the Euphrates. This suited the wishes of Tiberius. He provided Phraates with what he needed for assuming his father's sovereignty while he clung to his purpose of regulating foreign affairs by a crafty policy and keeping war at a distance artabanus meanwhile hearing of the treacherous arrangement was one moment perplexed by apprehension the next fired with a longing for revenge with barbarians indecision is a slave's weakness prompt action king-like but now expediency prevailed and he invited abdus under the guise of friendship to a banquet and disabled him by a lingering poison sinarches he put off by pretexts and presents and also by various employments phraates meanwhile on arriving in syria where he threw off the roman fashions to which for so many years he had been accustomed and adapted himself to parthian habits unable to endure the customs of his country was carried off by an illness. Still, Tiberius did not relinquish his purpose. He chose Tiridates, of the same stock as Artabanus, to be his rival, 
and the Iberian Mithridates to be the instrument of recovering Armenia, having reconciled him to his brother Pharasmanes, who held the throne of that country. He then entrusted the whole of his eastern policy to Lucius Vitellius. The man, I am aware, had a bad name at Rome, and many a foul story was told of him. But in the government of provinces he acted with the virtue of ancient times. He returned, and then, through fear of Caius Caesar and intimacy with Claudius, he degenerated into a civility so base that he is regarded by an after-generation as the type of the most degrading adulation. The beginning of his career was forgotten in its end, and an old age of infamy effaced the virtues of youth. Of the petty chiefs, Mithridates was the first to persuade Pharasmanes to aid his enterprise by stratagem and force, and agents of corruption were found who tempted the servants of Arsaces into crime by a quantity of gold. At the same instant the Iberians burst into Armenia with a huge host, and captured the city of Artaxata. Artabanus, on hearing this, made his son Orodes the instrument of vengeance. He gave him the Parthian army, and dispatched men to Har auxiliaries. Pharasmanes, on the other hand, allied himself with the Albanians, and procured aid from the Samate, whose highest chiefs took bribes from both sides, after the fashion of their countrymen, and engaged themselves in conflicting interests. But the Iberians, who were masters of the various positions, suddenly poured the Samate into Armenia by the Caspian route, Meanwhile, those who were coming up to the support of the Parthians were easily kept back, all other approaches having been closed by the enemy except one, between the sea and the mountains on the Albanian frontier, which some are rendered difficult, as there the shallows are flooded by the force of the Etesian gales. The south wind in winter rolls back the waves, and when the sea is driven back upon itself, the shallows along the coast are exposed. Meantime, while Orodes was without an ally, Pharasmanes, now strengthened by reinforcements, challenged him to battle, taunted him on his refusal, rode up to his camp and harassed his foraging parties. He often hemmed him in with his piques in the fashion of a blockade, till the Parthians, who were unused to such insults, gathered round the king and demanded battle. Their sole strength was in cavalry, Pharasmanes was also powerful in infantry, for the Iberians and Albanians, inhabiting as they did a densely wooded country, were more inured to hardship and endurance. They claimed to have been descended from the Thessalians, at the period when Jason, after the departure of Media, and the children born of her, returned subsequently to the empty palace of Aeates, and the vacant kingdom of Colchi. They have many traditions connected with his name and with the oracle of Phrixus. No one among them would think of sacrificing a ram, the animal supposed to have conveyed Phrixus, whether it was really a ram or the figurehead of a ship. Both sides having been drawn up in battle array, the Parthian leader expatiated on the empire of the east and the renown of the Arsacids, in contrast to the despicable Iberian chief with his hireling soldiery. Pharasmanes reminded his people that they had been free from Parthian domination, and that the grander their aims, the more glory they would win if victorious, the more disgrace and peril they would incur if they turned their backs 
he pointed, as he spoke, to his own menacing array, and to the Median bands with their golden embroidery. Warriors, as he said, on one side, spoil on the other. Among the Somati, the general's voice was not alone to be heard. They encouraged one another not to begin the battle with volleys of arrows. They must, they said, anticipate attack by a hand-to-hand -hand charge. Then followed every variety of conflict. The Parthians, accustomed to pursue or fly with equal science, deployed their squadrons and sought scope for their missiles. The Sarmati, throwing aside their bows, which at a shorter range are effective, rushed on with pikes and swords. Sometimes, as in a cavalry action, there would be alternate advances and retreats, then again close fighting, in which breast to breast, with the clash of arms, they repulsed the foe, or were themselves repulsed. And now the Albanians and Iberians seized, and hurled the Parthians from their steeds, and embarrassed their enemy with a double attack, pressed as they were by the cavalry on the heights, and by the nearer blows of the infantry. Meanwhile, Pharasmanes and Orodes, who as they cheered on the brave and supported the wavering, were conspicuous to all, and so recognised each other, rushed to the combat with a shout, with javelins and galloping charges, Pharasmanes with a greater impetuosity, for he pierced his enemy's helmet at a stroke. But he could not repeat the blow, as he was hurried onwards by his horse, and the wounded man was protected by the bravest of his guards. A rumour that he was slain, which was believed by mistake, struck panic into the Parthians, and they yielded the victory. Artabanus very soon marched with the whole strength of his kingdom, intent on vengeance. The Iberians, from their knowledge of the country, fought at an advantage. Still Artabanus did not retreat till Vitellius had assembled his legions, and, by starting a report that he meant to invade Mesopotamia, raised an alarm of war with Rome. Armenia was then abandoned, and the fortunes of Artabanus were overthrown, Vitellius persuading his subjects to forsake a king who was a tyrant in peace and ruinously unsuccessful in war. And so Sinarches, whose enmity to the prince I have already mentioned, drew into actual revolt his father Abdagises and others, who had been secretly in his council, and were now, after their continued disasters, more eager to fight. By degrees, many flocked to him who, having been kept in subjection by fear rather than by good will, took courage as soon as they found leaders. Artabanus had now no resources, but in some foreigners who guarded his person, men exiled from their own homes, who had no perception of honour or any scruple about a base act, mere hireling instruments of crime. With these attendants, he hastened his flight into the remote country on the borders of Scythia, in the hope of aid, as he was connected by marriage alliances with the Hyrcanians and Carmanians. Meantime, the Parthians, he thought, indulgent as they are to an absent prince, though restless under his presence, might turn to a better mind. Vitellius, as soon as Artabanus had fled and his people were inclined to have a new king, urged Tiridates to seize the advantage thus offered, and then led the main strength of the legions and the allies to the banks of the Euphrates. While they were sacrificing the one after Roman custom, offering a swine, a ram, and a bull, 
the other a horse, which he had duly prepared as a propitiation to the river god, they were informed by the neighbouring inhabitants that the Euphrates, without any violent rains, was of itself rising to an immense height, and that the white foam was curling into circles like a diadem, an omen of a prosperous passage. Some explained it with more subtlety, of a successful commencement to the enterprise, which, however, would not be lasting, on the ground that though a confident trust might be placed in prognostics given in the earth or in the heavens, the fluctuating character of rivers exhibited omens which vanished the same moment. A bridge of boats having been constructed, and the army having crossed, the first to enter the camp was Ornaspades, with several thousand cavalry. Formerly an exile, he had rendered conspicuous aid to Tiberius in the completion of the Dalmatic War, and had for this been rewarded with Roman citizenship. Subsequently, he had again sought the friendship of his king, by whom he had been raised to high honour, and appointed governor of the plains, which, being surrounded by the waters of those famous rivers, the Euphrates and Tigris, have received the name of Mesopotamia. Soon afterwards, Sinarches reinforced the army, and Abdegesis, the mainstay of the party, came with the royal treasure and what belonged to the crown. Vitellius thought it enough to have displayed the arms of Rome, and he then bade Tiridates remember his grandfather Phraates, and his foster-father Caesar, and all that was glorious in both of them, while the nobles were to show obedience to their king, and respect for us, each maintaining his honour and his loyalty. This done, he returned with the legions to Syria. I have related in sequence the events of two summer campaigns, as a relief to the reader's mind from our miseries at home. Though three years had elapsed since the destruction of Sejanus, neither time, entreaties, nor sated gratification, all which have a soothing effect on others, softened Tiberius, or kept him from punishing doubtful or forgotten offences as most flagrant and recent crimes. Under this dread, Fulcinius Trio, unwilling to face an onslaught of accusers, inserted in his will several terrible imputations on Macro, and on the emperor's principal freedmen, while he taunted the emperor himself with the mental decay of old age, and the virtual exile of continuous retirement. Tiberius ordered these insults, which Trio's heirs had suppressed, to be publicly read, thus showing his tolerance of free speech in others, and despising his own shame, or possibly, because he had long been ignorant of the villainies of Sejanus, and now wished any remarks, however reckless, to be published, and so to ascertain, through invective, if it must be so, the truth which flattery obscures. About the same time, Granius Marcianus, a senator, who was accused of treason by Caius Gracchus, laid hands on himself. Tarius Gratianus, too, an ex-praetor, was condemned under the same law to capital punishment. A similar fate befell Trebellianus Rufus and Sextius Peconianus. Trebellianus perished by his own hand. Peconianus was strangled in prison, for having there written some lampoons on the emperor. Tiberius received the news, no longer parted by the sea, as he had been once, or through messengers from a distance, but in close proximity to Rome, 
so that on the same day, or after the interval of a single night, he could reply to the despatches of the consuls, and almost behold the bloodshed as it streamed from house to house, and the strokes of the executioner. At the year's close, Poppaeus Sabinus died, a man of somewhat humble extraction, who had risen by his friendship with two emperors to the consulship, and the honours of a triumph. During twenty-four years he had the charge of the most important provinces, not for any remarkable ability, but because he was equal to business, and was not too great for it. Quintus Plautius and Sextus Papinius were the next consuls. The fact that that year Lucius Arusius was put to death did not strike men as anything horrible from their familiarity with evil deeds. But there was a panic when Vibulanus Agrippa, a Roman knight, as soon as his accusers had finished their case, took from his robe, in the very senate house, a dose of poison, drank it off, and, as he fell expiring, was hurried away to prison by the prompt hands of lictors, where the neck of the now lifeless man was crushed with a halter. Even Tigranes, who had once ruled Armenia, and was now impeached, did not escape the punishment of an ordinary citizen on the strength of his royal title. Caius Galba, meanwhile, and the Blysi perished by a voluntary death. Galba, because a harsh letter from the emperor forbade him to have a province allotted to him, while as for the Blysi, the priesthoods intended for them during the prosperity of their house, Tiberius had withheld, when that prosperity was shaken, and now conferred, as vacant offices, on others. This they understood as a signal of their doom, and acted on it. Amelia Lepida, too, whose marriage with the younger Drusus I have already related, who, though she had pursued her husband with ceaseless accusations, remained unpunished, infamous as she was, as long as her father Lepidus lived, subsequently fell a victim to the informers for adultery with a slave. There was no question about her guilt, and so, without an attempt at defence, she put an end to her life. At this same time the Clitae, a tribe subject to the Cappadocian Archelaus, retreated to the heights of Mount Taurus, because they were compelled in Roman fashion to render an account of their revenue, and submit to tribute. There they defended themselves by means of the nature of the country, against the king's unwarlike troops. To Marcus Trebellius, whom Vitellius, the governor of Syria, sent as his lieutenant with four thousand legionaries and some picked auxiliaries, surrounded with his lines two hills, occupied by the barbarians, the lesser of which was named Cadra, the other Devara. Those who dared to sally out, he reduced to surrender by the sword, the rest by drought. Tiridates, meanwhile, with the consent of the Parthians, received the submission of Nicephorium, and Thamusius, and the other cities, which, having been founded by Macedonians, claim Greek names, also of the Parthian towns, Halius and Artemita. There was a rivalry of joy among the inhabitants who detested Artabanus, bred as he had been among the Scythians, for his cruelty, and hoped to find in Tiridates a kindly spirit from his Roman training. Seleucia, a powerful and fortified city, which had never lapsed into barbarism, 
but had clung loyally to its founder Seleucus, assumed the most marked tone of flattery. Three hundred citizens, chosen for wealth or wisdom, form a kind of senate, and the people have powers of their own. When both act in concert, they look with contempt on the Parthians. As soon as they are at discord, and the respective leaders invite aid for themselves against their rivals, the ally summoned to help a faction crushes them all. This had lately happened in the reign of Artabanus, who, for his own interest, put the people at the mercy of the nobles. As a fact, popular government almost amounts to freedom, while the rule of the few approaches closely to a monarch's caprice. Seleucia now celebrated the arrival of Tiridates with all the honours paid to princes of old, and all which modern times, with a more copious inventiveness, have devised. Reproaches were at the same time heaped on Artabanus, as an Arsacid indeed on his mother's side, but as in all else, degenerate. Tiridates gave the government of Seleucia to the people. Soon afterwards, as he was deliberating on what day he should inaugurate his reign, he received letters from Phraates and Haro, who held two very powerful provinces, imploring a brief delay. It was thought best to wait for men of such commanding influence, and meanwhile Ctesiphon, the seat of empire, was their chosen destination. But as they postponed their coming from day to day, the Serena, in the presence of an approving throng, crowned Tiridates, according to the national usage, with the royal diadem. And now had he instantly made his way to the heart of the country, and to its other tribes, the reluctance of those who wavered would have been overpowered, and all to a man would have yielded. By besieging a fortress into which Artabanus had conveyed his treasure and his concubines, he gave them time to disown their compact. Phraates and Hero, with others who had not united in celebrating the day fixed for the coronation, some from fear, some out of jealousy of Abdegesis, who then ruled the court and the new king, transferred their allegiance to Artabanus. They found him in Hyrcania, covered with filth and procuring sustenance with his bow. He was at first alarmed under the impression that treachery was intended, but when they pledged their honour that they had come to restore to him his dominion, his spirit revived, and he asked what the sudden change meant. Haro then spoke insultingly of the boyish years of Tiridates, hinting that the throne was not held by an Arsacid, but that a mere empty name was enjoyed by a feeble creature bred in foreign effeminacy, while the actual power was in the house of Abdegesis. An experienced king, Artabanus knew that men do not necessarily feign hatred because they are false in friendship. He delayed only while he was raising auxiliaries in Scythia, and then pushed on in haste, thus anticipating the plots of enemies and the fickleness of friends. Wishing to attract popular sympathy, he did not even cast off his miserable garb. He stooped to wiles and to entreaties, to anything indeed, by which he might allure the wavering and confirm the willing. He was now approaching the neighbourhood of Seleucia with a large force, while Tiridates, dismayed by the rumour, and then by the king's presence in person, was divided in mind, and doubted whether he should march against him, or prolong the war by delay. Those who wished for battle with its prompt decision argued that ill-arrayed levies, fatigued by a long march, could not even in heart be thoroughly united in obedience, 
traitors and enemies as they had lately been, to the prince whom now again they were supporting. Abdegesis, however, advised a retreat into Mesopotamia. There, with a river in their front, they might in the interval summon to their aid the Armenians and Elimenians, and other nations in their rear, and then, reinforced by allies and troops which would be sent by the Roman general, they might try the fortune of war. This advice prevailed, for Abdegesis had the chief influence, and Tiridates was a coward in the face of danger. But their retreat resembled a flight. The Arabs made a beginning, and then the rest went to their homes or to the camp of Artabanus, till Tiridates returned to Syria with a few followers, and thus relieved all from the disgrace of desertion. That same year, Rome suffered from a terrible fire, and part of the circus near the Aventine Hill was burnt, as well as the Aventine Quarter itself. This calamity the emperor turned to his own glory by paying the values of the houses and blocks of tenements. A hundred million of sesterces was expended in this munificence, a boon all the more acceptable to the populace, as Tiberius was rather sparing in building at his private expense. He raised only two structures, even at the public cost, the Temple of Augustus and the stage of Pompey's Theatre. And when these were completed, he did not dedicate them, either out of contempt for popularity or from his extreme age. Four commissioners, all husbands of the emperor's granddaughters, Gnaeus Domitius, Cassius Longinus, Marcus Vinicius, Rubelius Blandus, were appointed to assess the damage in each case, and Publius Petronius was added to their number on the nomination of the consuls. Various honours were devised and decreed to the emperor, such as each man's ingenuity suggested. It is a question which of these he rejected or accepted, as the end of his life was so near. For soon afterwards, Tiberius's last consuls, Gnaeus Acheronius and Caius Pontius, entered on office, Macro's power being now excessive. Every day the man cultivated more assiduously than ever the favour of Caius Caesar, which indeed he had never neglected, and after the death of Claudia, who had, as I have related, been married to Caius, he had prompted his wife Enya to unveil the young prince by a pretence of love, and to bind him by an engagement of marriage, and the lad, provided he could secure the throne, shrank from no conditions. For though he was of an excitable temper, he had thoroughly learnt the falsehoods of hypocrisy under the loving care of his grandfather. This the emperor knew, and he therefore hesitated about bequeathing the empire first between his grandsons. Of these, the son of Drusus was nearest in blood and natural affection, but he was still in his childhood. Germanicus's son was in the vigour of youth and enjoyed the people's favour, a reason for having his grandfather's hatred. Tiberius had even thought of Claudius, as he was of sedate age and had a taste for liberal culture, but a weak intellect was against him. If, however, he were to seek a successor outside of his house, he feared that the memory of Augustus and the name of the Caesars would become a laughing-stock and a scorn. It was, in fact, not so much popularity in the present for which he cared, as for glory in the future. 
perplexed in mind, exhausted in body, he soon left to destiny a question to which he was unequal, though he threw out some hints from which it might be inferred that he foresaw what was to come. He taunted Macro, in no obscure terms, with forsaking the setting and looking to the rising sun. Once, too, when Caius Caesar, in a casual conversation, ridiculed Lucius Sulla, he predicted to him that he would have all Sulla's vices, and none of his virtues. At the same moment, he embraced the younger of his two grandsons with a flood of tears, and, noting the savage face of the other, said, You will slay this boy, and will be yourself slain by another. But even while his strength was fast failing, he gave up none of his debaucheries. In his sufferings he would simulate health, and was wont to jest at the arts of the physician, and at all who, after the age of thirty, require another man's advice to distinguish between what is beneficial or hurtful to their constitutions. At Rome, meanwhile, were being sown the seeds of bloodshed to come even after Tiberius's death. Acutia, formerly the wife of Publius Vitellius, had been accused of treason by Lilius Balbus. When, on her condemnation, a reward was being voted to her prosecutor, Junius Otho, tribune of the people, interposed his veto. Hence a feud between Vitellius and Otho, ending in Otho's banishment. Then Albucilla, notorious for the number of her lovers, who had been married to Satrius Secundus, the betrayer of the late conspiracy, was charged with irreverence towards the emperor. With her were involved as her accomplices and paramours, Gnaeus Domitius, Vibius Marsus, and Lucius Aruntius. I have already spoken of the illustrious rank of Domitius. Marsus too was distinguished by the honours of his ancestors, and by his own attainments. It was, however, stated in the notes of the proceedings furnished to the Senate, that Macro had superintended the examination of the witnesses, and the torture of the slaves, and the fact that there was no letter from the Emperor against the defendants, caused a suspicion that, while he was very feeble, and possibly ignorant of the matter, the charge was to a great extent invented to gratify Macro's well-known enmity against Arontius. And so Domitius and Marsus prolonged their lives, Domitius preparing his defence, Marsus having apparently resolved on starvation. Aruntius, when his friends advised delay and temporising, replied that, the same conduct was not becoming in all persons, he had had enough of life, and all he regretted was that he had endured amid scorn and peril an old age of anxious fears, long detested by Sejanus, now by Macro, always indeed by some powerful minister, not for any fault, but as a man who could not tolerate gross iniquities. Granted the possibility of passing safely through the few last days of Tiberius, how was he to be secure under the youth of the coming sovereign? Was it probable that, when Tiberius, with his long experience of affairs, was, under the influence of absolute power, wholly perverted and changed, 
Caius Caesar, who had hardly completed his boyhood, was thoroughly ignorant and bred under the vilest training, would enter on a better course, with Macro for his guide, who, having been selected for his superior wickedness, to crush Sir Janus, had by yet more numerous crimes been the scourge of the state. He now foresaw a still more galling slavery, and therefore sought to flee alike from the past and from the impending future. While he thus spoke like a prophet, he opened his veins. What followed will be a proof that Arruntius rightly chose death. Albuquilla, having stabbed herself with an ineffectual wound, was by the Senate's order carried off to prison. Those who had ministered to her profligacy, Carcidius Sacados, an ex-praetor, and Pontius Fregellanus, were sentenced, respectively, to transportation to an island, and to loss of a senator's rank. A like punishment was adjudged in the case of Lilius Balbus, and indeed with intense satisfaction, as Balbus was noted for his savage eloquence and his eagerness to assail the innocent. About the same time, Sextus Papinius, who belonged to a family of consular rank, chose a sudden and shocking death by throwing himself from a height. The cause was ascribed to his mother, who, having been repeatedly repulsed in her overtures, had at last by her arts and seductions driven him to an extremity from which he could find no escape but death. She was accordingly put on her trial before the Senate, and, although she grovelled at the knees of the senators, and long urged a parent's grief, the greater weakness of a woman's mind under such an affliction and other sad and pitiful pleas of the same painful kind. She was, after all, banished from Rome for ten years, till her younger son would have passed the frail period of youth. Tiberius's bodily powers were now leaving him, but not his skill in dissembling. There was the same stern spirit. He had his words and looks under strict control, and occasionally would try to hide his weakness, evident as it was, by a forced politeness. After frequent changes of place, he at last settled down on the promontory of Mycenaeum, in a country house once owned by Lucius Lucullus. There it was noted, in this way, that he was drawing near his end. There was a physician, distinguished in his profession, of the name of Charicles, usually employed not indeed to have the direction of the emperor's varying health, but to put his advice at immediate disposal. This man, as if he were leaving on business his own, clasped his hand with a show of homage, and touched his pulse. Tiberius noticed it. Whether he was displeased and strove the more to hide his anger is a question. At any rate, he ordered the banquet to be renewed, and sat at the table longer than usual, by way, apparently, of showing honour to his departing friend. Charicles, however, assured Macro that his breath was failing, and that he would not last more than two days. All was at once hurry. There were conferences among those on the spot, and despatches to the generals and armies. On the 15th of March, his breath failing, he was believed to have expired, and Caius Caesar was going forth with a numerous throng of congratulating followers to take the first possession of the empire, 
when suddenly news came that Tiberius was recovering his voice and sight, and calling for persons to bring him food to revive him from his faintness. Then ensued a universal panic, and while the rest fled hither and thither, every one feigning grief or ignorance, Caius Caesar, in silent stupor, passed from the highest hopes to the extremity of apprehension. Macro, nothing daunted, ordered the old emperor to be smothered under a huge heap of clothes, and all to quit the entrance hall. And so died Tiberius, in the seventy-eighth year of his age. Nero was his father, and he was on both sides descended from the Claudian house, though his mother passed by adoption first into the Livian, then into the Julian family. From earliest infancy perilous vicissitudes were his lot. Himself an exile, he was the companion of a prescribed father, and on being admitted as a stepson into the house of Augustus, he had to struggle with many rivals, so long as Marcellus and Agrippa, and subsequently Caius and Lucius Caesar, were in their glory. Again his brother Drusus enjoyed in a greater degree the affection of the citizens. But he was more than ever on dangerous ground after his marriage with Julia, whether he tolerated or escaped from his wife's profligacy. On his return from Rhodes, he ruled the emperor's now heirless house for twelve years, and the Roman world, with absolute sway, for about twenty-three. His character, too, had its distinct periods. It was a bright time in his life and reputation, while under Augustus he was a private citizen, or held high offices, a time of reserve and crafty assumption of virtue, as long as Germanicus and Drusus were alive. Again, while his mother lived, he was a compound of good and evil. He was infamous for his cruelty, though he veiled his debaucheries while he loved or feared Sejanus. Finally, he plunged into every wickedness and disgrace, when fear and shame being cast off, he simply indulged his own inclinations. Note the four following books and the beginning of Book Eleven, which are lost, contained the history of a period of nearly ten years, from A.D. 37 to A.D. 47. These years included the reign of Caius Caesar, Caligula, the son of Germanicus by the elder Agrippina, and the first six years of the reign of Claudius. Caius Caesar's reign was three years, ten months, and eight days in duration. Claudius... Tiberius Claudius Drusus Nero Germanicus, the brother of Germanicus, succeeded him at the age of fifty, and reigned from A.D. 41 to A.D. 54. The eleventh book of the Annals opens with the seventh year of Claudius's reign. The power of his wife Messalina was then at its height. She was, it seems, jealous of a certain Poppaea Sabina, who is mentioned in Book 13 as having surpassed in beauty all the ladies of her day. This Poppaea was the daughter of the Poppaea Sabinus, alluded to in Book 6, and the mother of the more famous Poppaea, afterwards the wife of the Emperor Nero. Messalina contrived to involve this lady and her lover, 
Valerius Asiaticus, in a ruinous charge. Asiaticus had been twice consul, once under Caius Caesar, a second time under Claudius in AD 46. He was rich as well as noble. The eleventh book, as we have it, begins with the account of his prosecution by means Messalina, who, with the help of Lucius Vitellius, Vitellius father of the Vitellius afterwards emperor, effected his ruin. End of note. End of book six. Recording by Andrew Coleman.